vanity of vanity. All is vanity. The teacher in Ecclesiastes is having a rough day, which might be kind of surprising since the teacher in Ecclesiastes is King Solomon, who is the richest and wisest king of all of Israel. But that's the problem. You see, Solomon has realized that all his wisdom, all his learning has led him to this conclusion, that those who increase their knowledge increase their sorrow. It's like those of us who have to turn off the news before we get too depressed, because the more we learn about the world, the more sad we get. Except for Solomon, what's depressing him is not other people's life, it's his own. You see, Solomon has worked hard his whole life to be a good king. His father, King David, managed to end the civil war, to forge the warring tribes of Israel into a united kingdom. And Solomon built on that legacy. Solomon literally built the temple named for him, which is one of the great wonders of the ancient world. But he also built up learning. He built up the arts. Whereas King David made the kingdom out of a military necessity, Solomon turns that kingdom into an opportunity for cultural flourishing. But days after Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam, newly crowned, says to his subjects, My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Literally, he says that in the Bible. And he says, my father's yoke was heavy, but mine's going to be even heavier. My father disciplined you with whips. I'm going to discipline you with scorpions. Literally says that too. Then he jacks up the taxes on everyone, demands conscripted service. Literally within three days of being crowned, there's a full-on rebellion. Once again, Israel descends into civil war that will never be repaired. What David united is now divided north and south. The kingdom that Solomon prospered is now impoverished. And the enemies of Israel will use this division so that within three centuries, everything that Solomon has built is burned to the ground. And you get the sense when Solomon is writing Ecclesiastes that he's kind of aware things are going to go bad when his son inherits, right? Because he literally says in chapter 2, I hated all my toil. For all my toil under the sun, I realized, would get passed on to those who come after me. And who knows whether they will be wise or foolish. I think he knows. For he says, this also is vanity. Now that word vanity that we translate, vanity of vanities, in Hebrew, it's habel, right? The, like, the name of the character Abel in the Bible, who's not around for very long because his brother kills him. Habel literally means vapor. It's like if you breathe on a mirror, for a second it's there and then it's gone. That's what Solomon is saying life is. It's just breath on a mirror. While you breathe on it, it's there, but as soon as you stop, it disappears. And so Solomon 
is looking at his life, all the work and toil to learn and be a good king, building up his kingdom, and he realizes that as soon as he dies, it's all going to go away, so that as far as his legacy is concerned, he would have accomplished just as much by being a lazy fool. And so he concludes that through all our work, we accomplish nothing. Everything is vanity. It's just breath on a mirror. And that's basically the point of the parable that Jesus tells us today in Luke chapter 12. See, Jesus tells a parable about a rich man, and his land produces abundantly so much that the rich man says, I can't fit all this in the barn that I have. What should I do? The guy says, here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my barn, and I'll build a bigger barn. And that way I can store up so much food that I can say to my soul, soul, relax. You have ample goods stored up for years. Eat, drink, be merry. But Jesus says, God says to that man that very night, your soul is being demanded of you. As soon as that man has enough riches that he can retire and enjoy life, he dies. All that work and he achieves nothing. Everything is vanity. It's breath on a mirror. And so... This question then becomes, what do we do with that? What do we do with that breath on a mirror? Because I don't know, maybe you feel this way too. Maybe you feel like every day you just wake up and you go to work and you come home and you go to sleep so that you can wake up and go to work and the cycle just repeats and you hope that in all that you'll earn enough money that someday you can retire and enjoy life before you die. That's the hope. Or maybe you have retired. Maybe you've gotten to that point and you've realized, actually, your life's not all that much different. It's just now you don't have a job to go to. So you just wake up, make sure your body keeps functioning, go back to sleep to wake up and make sure your body keeps functioning. And, and then one day you won't wake up. Or maybe you're at home with kids and your life has just become an endless cycle of clean the kids, feed the kids, clothe the kids. Now they're messing, so you got to clean the kids, clothe the kids, feed the kids. And you think to yourself, it's only 18 years of this, right? But then you look and you see 30-year-olds living with your par their parents, and you're like, oh, no, this is never going to end. <laughs> to say, if that's how you feel, there is a whole book of the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes, written just for you. The ancient Greeks, I think, encap encapsulate this feeling well, too, in, this, in the myth of Sisyphus. I don't know if you know this myth, but the idea is there's this guy named Sisyphus, and he's condemned by the gods to spend eternity pushing a boulder up a mountain. But as soon as he gets the boulder to the top of the mountain, it just rolls back down again, and he has to start all over pushing it back up. King Solomon describes that kind of feeling of Endless work just being futile. But Solomon uses a description of natural cycles. We skip over a few verses in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. But in those verses, Solomon uses three different natural phenomenons to describe the futility of the work we do in our life. And the first one is the rising and the setting of the sun. Solomon says, look, the sun rises early in the morning and it spends all day getting across to the other side. And when it gets across to the other side, what does it do? It just goes back, and the next day it starts all over again. Well, what did it accomplish? Or he says the wind, he says the wind, it blows from the north down to the south, and when it gets to the south, it just whips around and blows right back up to the north. Just round and round it goes. What it accomplishes, who knows? Or he says the streams. 
He says every single stream in the world, they're all racing as fast as they can to get to the sea, but the sea is never filled. So what do they accomplish? And Solomon says, look, if the movement of the sun, if the going to and fro of the wind, if the racing of the streams, if they don't accomplish anything, why should we think our busyness does? And so Solomon says, there is nothing new under the sun. But here's the thing. That movement of the sun, that movement of the wind, that cycle of the streams into the sea, it may not feel like from one day to the next they have noticeably transformed the world, but they fulfill what Jesus' promise is after he tells us the parable about the rich man and his barns. Because after telling us the parable of the rich man and his barns, Jesus says, why do you worry about what you're going to eat or the clothes that you're going to wear? Jesus says, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They don't have a storehouse or a barn, and yet God feeds them. And of how much more worth are you than the birds? And then Jesus says, consider the lilies, how they neither toil nor spin. Yet even Solomon, in all his finery, was not clothed like one of these. So how does God feed the ravens? How does God clothe the lilies? God uses the sun. Right, that sun rising in the east and setting in the west if it stayed still in one spot in the sky, what would happen is one half of the earth would be burned to a crisp and nothing could live there, and the other half would be frozen in eternal night. But that movement of the sun doing the same thing every single day, it gives the earth just enough warmth that we can all have life. And the wind that just seems to blow to and fro, it carries the seeds and the pollen that the lilies need to grow. It carries the ravens on their wings to new lands where they can find food, and the streams that are racing to the sea, when they get there, what do they do? They evaporate. They become clouds that become rain that fall on the fields so that the lilies can grow and so that the birds can have their food. Solomon, he sees the movement of the sun, of the wind, and of the streams, and he says, this is just pointless futility, but God sees the sun and the wind and the streams, and God says, this is how I will bring forth the beauty of life. Yeah. In the 20th century, there was a, a philosopher named Albert Camus who was just getting depressed because it seemed like everything was just becoming mechanized, and it's the same routine for all of us in this modern society. And so he looked to the myth of Sisyphus for inspiration. And he says, you know, I imagine Sisyphus seeing the boulder he's just pushed to the top of the mountain roll all the way back down, and at first he feels sorrow. But then Camus says, there's a moment at which Sisyphus decides for himself that he's not going to think of pushing up this boulder as a curse that he's been given. Instead, he's going to choose this action for himself. He's going to decide that it's his mission in life to push this boulder, not because getting it to the top is the most important thing in the world, but because he has found purpose in the struggle. He has found purpose in the struggle by 
making it his own, by giving it his own meaning. And so the struggle itself becomes enough to fill his heart. Camus says, we must imagine Sisyphus happy. For how else can we imagine ourselves to be happy? And I think if King Solomon had heard Camus say that, Solomon would have been delighted because it would have proved, first of all, that Solomon was right about there being nothing new under the sun since nearly 3,000 years earlier, Solomon had come to the same conclusion. You see, after saying that finding meaning in riches or achievements or wisdom is all futile, Solomon comes to this conclusion. He says, I have seen this to be good, to eat, to drink, and to find enjoyment in all our toil. Which is almost what the rich man says in Jesus' parable, but not quite. See, in the, in the parable, the rich man says to himself, after he's finally gathered up enough food that he's hoarded for himself, that he thinks, I don't have to work ever again, he says to himself, relax, eat, drink, and be merry, because he thinks, I don't have to work anymore, so at last I can be happy. But then he dies, so that doesn't work out for him. What Solomon's saying instead is eat, drink, and take enjoyment in the toil. To say, if our life is the daily struggle of pushing a boulder up a mountain, of going to our job over and over, of, of taking care of ourselves and the people around us, if we are trying to wait for that cycle to be over before we find happiness, we never will. And so Solomon says, find joy in the struggle. Now, that's easier said than done, I'll admit, right? Like, some of us maybe have inherently fun jobs, like maybe we're an ice cream taster. Yeah, that'd be great. Or maybe some of us have inherently virtuous feel-good jobs, like maybe we're a professional puppy rescuer. I don't know. But some of us, we just got jobs to put food on the table, right? It's not super inspiring, Martin Luther had the same problem 500 years ago. See, back in medieval Europe, people said the only work that's really worth doing is church work. Because that's the only work that really matters, right? Because by praying for people, by administering the sacraments, you save souls for eternity. Everything else is just passing the time here on earth. So you got to be a monk or a nun, a priest or a pastor. People were eager to leave their daily duties to enter monasteries and convents. But Luther looked around at this and said, God doesn't want everyone to be a pastor. If everyone was a pastor, we'd all die. Right? If everyone was a pastor, we wouldn't have any food to eat. If everyone was a pastor, no one would have any clothes to wear. We'd all be wandering around without houses to live in. Pastors don't make any of those things. In fact, in Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah talks about having a new covenant with the people of Israel, creating a new reality and a new kingdom in which God's people will live. And in that new reality, God says explicitly, there's not going to be any more pastors because everyone will have God directly in their hearts. They won't need anyone to teach them about God. But there's still going to be farmers and, and vintners and musical instrument makers because God says people are going to eat and they're going to drink and they're going to make music. Luther understood that whether 
you spend each day in an office or in a nursing home or in a nursery, you have a vocation. And our vocation is all the same. It is to be the mask through which God brings love and life into this world. Because you see, Jesus says, your father knows you need food and you need clothing. And it can be that God makes those things just fall down fully formed from the sky. But most of the time, God feeds you through a baker. God gives you clothes through a tailor to say the work that you do no matter what kind of work it is, whether at home or at a job, whether you're retired, spending time with your neighbors, whether you're at school, interacting with your classmates, your job is this, to be the sun, which gives warmth and light, to be the wind, which carries people to new heights, to be the streams which water people's soul. Luther says you are to be the masks that God uses to take care of this world. And so we all have one vocation, but we live it out in different ways. If in a moment we are making shoes, our vocation in that moment is to be God providing sturdy footwear for the person who buys our shoes. If in a given moment we are pouring coffee, our vocation in that moment is to be the mask through which God brings energy for that person to greet the day. If in a given moment we are voting, our vocation is to be God, helping raise up wise leaders. And if in a given moment we are changing diapers, our vocation in that moment is to be the mask through which God brings cleanliness and new life to that child. This is what we are called to do. Because you see, each and every single one of you has a vocation. It is the same vocation, but each and every one of you are given unique gifts to live out that vocation in the places and in the, the people that God has surrounded you. And Jesus has a word for what happens when people live out those vocations. Jesus calls it the kingdom of God. You see, the kingdom of God has bakers who bake bread and, and tailors who make clothes and farmers who grow food, but they do it not out of some vain attempt to leave an eternal mark on this earth, and they do it not out of some despairing drudgery. They do it because they realize that they have been blessed with the gifts to be the mask that God wears to love and care for people on this earth. And when we all wear that mask of God, we all have what we need. And so, Solomon may be right that through our work on this earth, we accomplish nothing. But through our work, Christ accomplishes everything. So when you feel like your work is nothing but breath on a mirror, may it be the breath of life through which God's face shines. Amen.